0: that once was crowned with thorn is crowned with glory now. Amen. You may be seated. I'll just tell you this morning, I'm probably more nervous today than I've ever been. Uh, we're talking about in his image, and we're talking about marriage and how it relates to being made in his image. And um, and I want to introduce to you, some of you may or may not know my bride, I'm going to ask Kathy to come out for a moment. She didn't know she was coming out today. So this might be news to her. Um, all right, Kathy, you doing good? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about my bride before we get into our message time and you know, a lot of you have known Kathy since we've been here, but you know that you didn't, haven't known her when she was younger, and uh, we did a lot of things together. And when we were dating, and I think I was about five, and she was about 15 or 25, <laughs> and so um, when we were dating, she, um, I told her, I said, you know, I, I want to do whatever God's called me to do, no matter what that is, and if you don't want to sign up for that, now's the time to say no. Well, somebody asked me later, they said, well, what did she say? I said, well, we got married, so that tells you what she said. <laughs> She agreed, and she's been there to support me through a lot of different things. She was my helper during during the times we were doing youth ministry, and she made a lot of late night trips and helped me take people home and pick people up. And has been there with me on a long journey. And you know, uh, uh, a number of years ago, about this coming July, will be 31 years uh, when we stood in the altar and said "I do." Again, I think I was now I think I was 10 by that time, and uh, so we got married very young and. um, and so, you never know whenever you say, I do, what that's going to mean, do you? Life can bring a lot of challenges. And it has for us, just like it does for you. So, we, we've been together for a while, and I wanted you to see just a little bit about what her life was like before we came here, and since we've been here, and so you can get kind of an image of what that looked like. And so, what I want to do this morning, before I get into our message time... One of the things I do with Kathy at home, and I'm going to invite you into our home just for a moment, so just pretend we're at my house. So when we're at home, we sing a lot, and I sing songs, and sometimes I'll sing a song, and then I'll just stop it and let her fill in the Word. And I'm not going to do that this morning because she won't do it. (laughs) But she will sing, and we sing some songs together, and that's just part of our routine. And sometimes we sing songs like we sang this morning. We sing worship songs, and sometimes I just sing her some love songs. Do you ever do that? And sometimes I just sing her some songs and, uh, and about whatever's going on that day, just a song will come to mind and we start singing it. So this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and just know, I, I hope I don't hurt you as much as I probably have hurt her, but I'm going to sing to her one of the songs I sing to her sometimes. Uh, lots of times when I'm feeding her, I'll sing a song to her. And this is one of the ones that I do that for. And so I'm going to sing this song and then there's going to be some pictures on the screen so that you can kind of see what her life's been like and our lives together on this journey. So uh, you okay if I sing to you? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're going to try it and see. And uh, Kathy, you can look at that screen right there. And you can see those pictures. Can you see? Can for the time that you give. The memories are all in my mind, and now we found we gold at, at the end, end. of. Thank you. I hope you got a chance to see a little glimpse of kind of our journey together. And uh, God has blessed me with Kathy and refined me, challenged me, changed me, transformed me. And so I'm so thankful for her and just wanted to share that with you. And God kind of put it on my heart a couple of weeks ago. I didn't know if it was going to come to fruition and not so sure that it should have. But anyway, we are in uh, Genesis chapter two this morning and we're talking about being made in his image. And we're talking about God. Arranging a harmonious relationship or a harmonious marriage or a harmonious arrangement. God arranged the very first message there in Genesis chapter 2. You know, God didn't, He didn't arrange a, an education system first or a governmental system first or a, or, or a church first. He arranged a marriage before He arranged anything. He made a marriage and it was a harmonious arrangement. Now you might be thinking this morning that your marriage was made somewhere but it, but it was maybe not made in heaven. But well, God made the first marriage in heaven. And you might be saying, well, you know, my marriage really isn't that harmonious. And maybe you feel like you have some strain in your marital relationship. And so if you want to have a harmonious marriage and a harmonious relationship, you have to do marriage God's way. You know, too many times people want to do marriage their own way. But we have to do marriage God's way if we want a harmonious relationship. And so I want us to read there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and following, and let's learn how to do marriage God's way. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in the Eden, and there He put the man whom He he had formed In the garden. Now slide down to verse 15 for a moment. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, the very first thing I want you to see is that God arranged marriage. God arranged marriage. Adam didn't arrange marriage. Eve didn't arrange marriage. Hollywood didn't arrange marriage. In fact, they can hardly keep one. The Supreme Court of the United States did not uh, uh, arrange marriage. You know, there are organizations today that rebel against the idea of marriage. And they think for some reason that marriage began in colonial America. Well, marriage did not begin in Washington, D.C. It did not begin in America. God is the one who arranged the very first marriage. Marriage was made in heaven. And the very first wedding ceremony took place outside in a garden. See, Adam and Eve had an outside wedding before anybody else thought to have one. Before it became popular, they already had an outside wedding. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says that a man will be joined to his wife, that he will cleave to his wife. That word in Hebrew, cleave or joined, is a, a word in which we get our word weld or to glue. So God glues you together. He welds you together in marriage. And so the verse would be like this. A man will leave his father and his mother. He'll be joined to his wife. In other words, he'll be glued You'll be welded, and the two shall become one flesh. Now you may be thinking this morning that when you came to the altar, when you got married, that you, you tied the knot. Sometimes people say, well, I tied the knot. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 19, 6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, God is the one who ties the knot. God is the one who glues you together. God is the one who welds you together in your marriage relationship. And so if you were to take those, like let's say for instance, God glues two people together, like we glue sometimes two pieces of paper together. If you, if you try to rip those pages apart, what happens? It does damage. It always leaves the remnant, a remnant of one on the other. It always does damage. That's why divorce is such a painful experience. And let me ask you this question this morning. What is the glue that's holding your marriage together? Is it finances? Is it... Good looks? Is it getting your needs met? Is it intimacy? What is the glue that holds your marriage together? If it's any of those, then you have a weak weld. You have a weak glue. If Christ is not the glue, if He's not the weld that's holding your marriage together, then you have a weak glue. We need to be centered around Christ, joined together in Christ. And so... If you have a weak glue holding your marriage together, you are an easy target for Satan. You are an easy target for him to destroy your marriage. You know, Satan's on, the, he, he's on a rampage to destroy marriage. In our country, he's on a rampage to destroy your marriage. That's his heartbeat. He wants to desecrate marriage. You know why? Because whenever he sees a marriage, whenever he sees a, a man and a woman living in harmony in Christ, it reminds him of God. It's like a picture of God, like Jesus and his church. And he doesn't want to have any reminder about God. He doesn't doesn't want to have any image that reminds him about God. kind of reminds me about the uh, singer, Christian singer, Carmen. I don't know if you all have ever heard of Carmen. Carmen died just a few weeks ago. He used to have Christian concerts at the Coliseum in Carolina, Carolina Coliseum. And I would take my youth. And it would pack the place out so there was no room to get in. Sometimes thousands would be left outside because they couldn't get into the Carolina Coliseum to hear Carmen sing. And I used to take my youth. And I remember one, on one occasion we took our youth and he told a story that just kind of resonated with me. And this is what he said. He said, when I was growing up, before I got into high school, I had an older brother. He was big, he was strong, he was a bully. And he'd go around beating everybody up. And nobody could stop it because he was bigger than they were. He was stronger than they were. And so he just beat them up. And they didn't like him. And they hated him. Well, whenever his older brother graduated from high school, Carmen came up behind him. He said, and every time they looked at me, they saw my older brother. And so what did they want to do? They wanted to beat me up. He said, so they would beat me up. He said, now, their, their anger was at his older brother. But because he reminded them, Carmen reminded them of his older brother, they went after him. And so, whenever Satan sees you bearing God's image, whenever he sees your marriage bearing God's image, he wants to destroy it. His aim is at God, but he uses you to do it, because he doesn't want any reminders. Not very much different than whenever a, a girlfriend or girlfriend or a boyfriend break up, is it? What do they do? They remove those reminders. They take away those pictures. They don't want to look at them. Well, that's what Satan is trying to do in destroying marriage. He wants to remove the reminder of Christ. In marriage, And so whenever Satan sees a harmonious marriage, whenever he sees a, a, a man and a woman in a relationship like it should be, it reminds him of the Trinity. One man, one woman united in Christ. And he doesn't like to see it. He wants to destroy it. And one way that he does that is he tries to dissolve marriages. You know, you think about it. When God created Eve, he put... Adam to sleep, and then he took a rib out and then he fashioned a woman out of Adam. So at that moment, a man and a woman were separated at creation. There was a separation. But whenever a man and a woman are united in marriage, there's a reunion between that man and woman. It's a picture. They're welded together in marriage. You know, some people, when they come to the altar, they don't really mean their vows. You know what people will say at the altar? They'll say, I, I, I promise to love, cherish, and honor. Uh, as long as we both shall live. But what they really mean is, I promise to do all those things as long as we both love. You know, I hear people all the time will say, well, you know, I just don't love my wife anymore. Or I just don't love my husband anymore. We just kind of fell out of love. And so at that moment, the relationship often dissolves. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity made this comment about love and marriage. He said, when you make a promise... It must be about things that you can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling a certain way. In other words, you can't go, promise to go on feeling a certain uh, loving affection. He might as well promise never to have a headache or to always feel hungry. Nobody can promise to, have, to always have a feeling of love and infatuation with another person. That's an impossibility. But we get this idea when we watch movies, when we listen to our songs on the radio, and when we uh, read our romance novels, we get this idea that if we just marry the right person, we'll always feel this love and affection toward this person that I'm married to. And then one morning when you wake up and you feel like you've lost that loving feeling, you think, oh, this marriage must be over. I must have married the wrong person. And we begin to to question and begin, begin to look for ways out of our marriage. Let me just say this. The emotion of love may come and go, but your commitment endures. Your commitment can endure. Let me put it to you this way, because I know you might be confused right now. Let's say you buy a house, and it has a beautiful view. And every morning you wake up to that gorgeous, inspiring view. And it just just inspires you every day. And then day after day, you wake up to that beautiful view. Do you know what happens over time when you see that view? You begin, if you're not careful to lose your infatuation, to lose your inspiration at the view, you begin to take it for granted. Everybody with me so far? Isn't that what we do? We begin to take it for granted. And so we say, well, one day you might wake up and think, you know, that view just didn't really inspire me today. It doesn't mean that you need to move. That's not the point. And when you kind of don't feel that loving butterflies in your stomach feeling anymore to the, when you think about your spouse, it doesn't mean that you need to divorce or go different ways. It means you need to choose love. You need to choose commitment. Yesterday, Jess, Easterling, and, and Gray, we went on a little expedition. We went to ride motorcycles up on some hills yesterday toward Columbia. They tried to kill me is what they did. But we would get to the bottom of a hill and then you would look up at that hill and it had some deep ruts, wouldn't it, Gray? It had have some rocks. And it would be slick. It would be slippery. And you'd be thinking when you start, do I really need to do this? But the rule is once you commit to go up that hill, you stay committed. Because if you don't, you're not going to make it. So what is the rule when it comes to our marriage? When you start up that hill... You commit and you stay committed. No matter how rocky it is, no matter how many ruts you endure, there might be challenges in your marriage, but you stay the course. You stay committed. And so it's real easy for us to, to want to give up. But let me just say this it's not love that keeps you committed in your marriage, it's your commitment that keeps you in love. Now, let me repeat that. It's not your love that keeps you committed. It's your commitment that keeps you in love. So we need to be committed. We need to choose love. You know, Satan also tries to destroy marriage by desecrating marriage. You know, he's convinced culture that a man can be married to a man and a woman can be married to a woman. He has convinced our culture to believe things that just aren't true. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that God created them male and female. God did that. And then over in, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 19... Uh, Jesus said that God created them male and female and then united them in marriage. That was God's plan from Genesis all the way through. And the Bible has always affirmed that to be the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. Now marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church. A man and a woman united in Christ. Do you realize how distorted it would look if it was Christ in in Christ or church in the church? No, it's not. The church and the church and Christ and Christ is Christ and His bride. They're different. They're not the same. A man and his bride. I think about Leviticus 18. And if you and I'm going, we're not going to read Leviticus 18, but I want you to go back and look at it sometime later. God begins to outline sexual sins. And one of those is adultery. And one of those is homosexuality. And this is what He says in Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as a as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now that's what God says about it. And then I go to the New Testament. He says the same thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful. Now I did not say that. God's word said that. Can you agree with me? That was not Jamie's words. That's the word of God, right out of the book. And so God clarified his position on this topic. There should be no ambiguity for us. It's very clear. And so God called it a vile passion. He called it. Uh, he said it was against nature. And so when I started thinking about homosexuality, I began to realize it's a spiritual problem. It's a sin problem, just like all of our other spiritual problems that we have, whether it be adultery or lust or greed or hate um, uh, or lying or whatever uh, trap that you find yourself in. It's the same type of thing. Now, listen, I don't doubt that some people struggle with same-sex attraction. I'm sure that's reality. Uh, People struggle with all types of things. So I'm not shocked by that. But because I would say someone's attracted, I would not say that equals permission. Let me give you an example. If someone were to come to me and say, you know, I, I just have this desire to commit adultery. Do you think I should say, well, you know what, you should just follow your feelings. Or what if somebody came to me and said, you know, I just, I just had this inclination to steal. Should I just say, well, that must be God's will for you. Or what if somebody came to me and said, you know, I just think I, I just have this desire. I just want to kill somebody. That's in my heart. Should I just go follow my heart? No. We would never say those things. If we did, there would be a whole lot more murder. I'll tell you that. So what's our response to someone struggling with a same-sex attraction or any sin? We're not going to just limit it to one. This deals with all sins. What is our reaction? Our reaction is that we need to always approach people with compassion knowing that they have a real struggle. And we need to approach them compassionately and help them through the word and work through those issues. But we need to do it without embracing it and without being enticed by it. That's in the scriptures. So it doesn't matter what the sin is, whether it's a drug addiction or adultery or lust or greed or lying or whatever uh, problem that you're facing, the same response ought to be true. Secondly, if a person has committed Sin the sin of homosexuality or adultery or whatever uh, sin that you may have found yourself entangled with. You need to know that God's forgiveness is available to you. Aren't you thankful for God's forgiveness? None of us are above uh, the need for forgiveness. We're all sinners. And so what happens? If I'm struggling with a sin, what does the Bible tell me to do? Confess it and turn to Jesus. Confess it and turn to Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, was writing to the Corinthian church, and this is what he said. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you were to read that and stop right there, you would be depressed because you think, who gets to go? Nobody. But then Paul says this, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. You know, I don't care what scene you're going through. The Bible says right here, no matter what it was, some of these people probably were dealing with homosexuality. He says that whenever they came to Christ, they were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified. He does the same thing for every, all of us. We confess it and we turn to Christ. God's grace is available to all who come to Christ Jesus, trusting in His shed blood to cover their sin. Can you say amen to that? So God arranged the marriage relationship. But God also arranged the marriage roles. You know, some people describe marriage as a three-ring circus. An engagement ring, a wedding ring, and suffering. (laughs) But God arranged marriage to be harmonious. Do you know where the word harmony comes from? And the root, it means to be fitted together. It means to be joined together. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And God has designed men and women in a marriage marriage relationship to be in harmony. That's what God did in Genesis chapter 2. He made a man and a woman fit together in marriage. He joined them. It's a harmonious relationship. You know, when I think about the word harmony... A lot of times we use it to talk about music, don't we? I think about our praise band, for example. We got Timmy on the drums and Steve on the bass. We got uh, John Bryant playing uh, rhythm guitar and lead guitar. We got Kayla playing rhythm guitar. We got uh, Daniel playing lead, and they're all playing, and they're playing different things. But when you put them together, it's harmony. It's harmony. I I think about our universe. There's harmony in the universe, too, isn't there? I mean, you think about all the systems that we have in our universe. We have a solar system. We have a lunar system. We have an ecosystem. We have a a geosphere, a, a biosphere, a hydrosphere, an atmosphere. All these things are working together in unison so that we can enjoy life on earth. That's harmony. Then I think about the human body. There's harmony in the human body too, isn't there? All these things working together in unison. You have a nervous system, and a respiratory system, and a skeletal system, and a circulatory system, and a digestive system. And they all work together to bring harmony in the body. And if they're not in harmony, you got a problem. You want your body to function in harmony. And that's how God wants his marriage to be. In harmony. Harmony. God designed the marriage relationship to work in harmony. That's why he made men and women different, so they could work together in harmony. And so men and women do have equal value, but they have different roles. And for those differences to work in harmony, you have to realize how they complement one another. And men and women complement each other in marriage. That's how God designed it, so that we would complement, so we could live in harmony. And I want to give you three roles of a husband and three roles of a wife really quickly here. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, so let me just say that up front. This is just three roles that I think we can find in Genesis. Number one, the man is to be the pastor and the wife is to be the follower. The man is to be the pastor and the wife is to be the follower. You know what a pastor is? A pastor is a shepherd. A pastor is a leader who goes before. The husband is the leader of his family. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, why do you have to have a leader? Why can't we just be both, you know, the same? There's no leader, no follower. Well, have you ever seen two people try to dance and both of them try to lead? Or have you tr- have seen two people try to follow and nobody lead? It's a disaster for their, for a dance to take place and everybody to move in, in sync. Ha- there has to be someone leading and there has to be one someone following. And so you might say, well, well, what makes the husband the leader of the family? Well, number one, Adam was created first. It was God's order of creation. He was the firstborn. Did you know in the Hebrew culture, the firstborn bore the responsibility of the family? The firstborn was responsible for the well-being of the family. And Adam was responsible for his family. But let's look at another point. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says that the Lord God took the man. He put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Do you know what I want you to see in those verses? That Adam was already in the garden working. And God had already given him the commandment not to eat of the forbidden fruit. before Before Eve was ever created. The commandment had already been given. So what did God expect? God expected Adam to convey that commandment to his wife because he was the spiritual leader. It was his responsibility. Adam was supposed to do that. Well, you might say, well, that was just in the garden. Things have changed now. We've evolved. But then I start thinking about Matthew. You know how consistent Scripture is, Old Testament and New Testament? When the New Testament, Mary and Joseph... Whenever they had Jesus, right? And they were living in Bethlehem. And God came to in a vision to Joseph and told him to go to Egypt because he was trying to protect Jesus from Herod, the baby killer. Do you remember that story? Do you know who God re- revealed the dream to? To Joseph. Why not Mary? Because Joseph was the pastor of the family. And then whenever God wanted Jesus to go to, Israel, who did he reveal it to? He revealed it to Joseph, because Joseph is the spiritual leader of the home. And so Joseph was the pastor of the family. And so let me ask you another question. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, who got the blame? Who did God point the finger at? Was it Eve? No, he pointed the finger at Adam. Because it was Adam's responsibility. He was the pastor. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12 it says, Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus uh, death spread to all men. Adam bore the responsibility of being the spiritual leader because he was the pastor of the family. And so let me just say this to our husbands today. We are the spiritual leaders of our family, and God will hold us accountable for how we lead. Can you say amen? I don't know how many men did that, but you are responsible. And to be the leader of your family means that you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and He gave Himself for her. That means you are to be a sacrificial leader, not a self-serving leader. That's what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That means you might have to sacrifice some dreams, maybe some desires so that you can lead your wife in sacrifice for her. In Ephesians chapter 5, it really lays out why we're to do that. Because God is talking about Christ and His relationship to the church as the bride. He says that in Ephesians 5, 26, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of, the, of water by the word. That He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish you are to lead your wife spiritually. You need to be leading your family in in devotions. You know, I go to some people's... I, I spend some time around families, and you know, sometimes I'll spend some time around a family, and the husband will never ask the blessing or say a prayer. He's a spiritual leader. He should be leading his family. Tony Evans said it this way, As goes the man, so goes the family. As goes the family so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the community. As goes the community, so goes the nation. If you want to change the nation, well, then you change the community. If you want to change the community, then you need to change the church. If you want to change the church, then you need to change the family. If you want to change the family, then you need to change the man. You're the spiritual leaders. And ladies, your role is to follow the lead of your husband in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, it says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as Christ is sub- the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. And you know, the, the biblical word we use sometimes is the word what? Submit. And we don't like to hear that word. None of us do, because none of us like to submit to anything. None of us do. And we think that whenever you use the word submit, that means inferiority. That you don't measure up. That you're less than. Did you know that Jesus was submissive to the Father? And one of the most powerful prayers I believe ever prayed was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus was in the Garden. It's on the night before his crucifixion. He knelt before God the Father. He said, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, but not my will, but your will be done. That's submission. That is a prayer of, of cooperation. Cooperating with the design of God and the plan of God. Now, to, to follow does not mean that's an absolute statement. You're never obligated to follow man when he leads you towards sin or in sin or against God's word. Never. But most of the issues with cooperation come from the desire for control or to be the lead. And uh, Adrian Rogers said it this way. You are never more like the devil than when you're rebelling against God's design, and you're never more like Christ when you submit to God's design. So the husband needs to be also a pastor, but he needs to be a provider, and the wife needs to be a helper. The husband is to be the provider. He's to provide for her financially. I don't know if you noticed a while ago when we just read those verses, but did you notice that God created Adam and the very first thing he did was gave him a job? And so ladies, if you are single and you're looking for a man and he doesn't like to work, you better run away. Because God made him to be a provider. The very first thing he gave him was a job. You young people are going to be looking for a husband one day or you better look and make sure if that man doesn't like to work, you better stay away. You need to make sure he can provide for you. He's going to pastor you. He's going to lead you. And I'll just say this to parents. I think if I was a parent, I'd be praying for my child that they would find a godly mate in life. And I wouldn't wait until they're dating to do that. And if I was a young person, I think I would do the same. And so, you need to provide for your wife financially. That does not mean that you're going to always make more money than your wife. But you are responsible for the financial well-being of your family. Secondly, you need to provide for your wife romantically. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And guys, we need to romance our wives. And you know it's very hard for men to romance our wives. You know why? Because we weren't created that way. We were created to work, to conquer, to pursue. And so women sometimes will wonder, why is my wife, my husband why does he struggle so much with romance? Because he wasn't made that way. And so it's a struggle for him. He has to work on it. I heard someone say, you know, men sometimes treat their wives like deer hunters treat deer. They go out and sit in a deer stand on a cold, rainy day, and they'll sit there for hours just hunting. They love to hunt. They love to pursue. They get the thrill of it. And then they'll finally kill that deer, and they mount it on the wall they've conquered. They mount it on the wall as a trophy, and then they forget about it. And one man said, you don't treat your wife like a deer where you put it on the wall as a trophy and forget about her. We need to romance our wives. I heard recently about a man who was at breakfast and he was reading a newspaper, drinking his coffee, and his wife walked up and said, Honey, I bet you don't know what day it is. He says, Of course I do. You think I would forget? And so later that day, he sent her a bouquet of red roses. Later that day, he sent her a box of chocolates. Later that day, he sent her a, a negligee. Well, when he got home... The table was set. The candles were lit. She had already cut fresh flowers and had a magnificent meal. And when it was all over, she got up from her chair. She moved over to him. She took him by the hand, looked him in the eyes. She said, I want to thank you for making this the best Groundhog's Day I've ever had. (laughs) You know, we need to romance our wives. You need to tell her that you love her. And to do it often, you need to tell her that she's beautiful. You know, women work hard to get beautiful. I don't know if guys realize that, but they do. I read when one little boy was watching his mother put on some cold cream. She was putting it all over her face, and she, he said, Well, Mama, why are you doing that? She says, Well, I want to make myself beautiful. A few minutes later, she started taking it off. He said, Mama, are you giving up already? <laughs> We need to tell our wives that they're beautiful. You need to plan some vacations together. You need to go on date nights. You need to spend time doing things that you enjoy together. You know, I've talked to some couples that drifted away, separated and divorced, and I asked them what happened. You know what they would say? We just we just stopped doing things together. You need to do things together. You need to provide financially and romantically, but also emotionally. You need to listen to your wife if you come home and you feel like there's some tension in the air and you say, honey, is everything all right? And she says, everything's fine. Don't believe it. That's what she said, but that's not what she meant. What she really means is nothing's fine, everything's wrong, and so don't go and say, well, I just asked. No, you better start listening. Listen to what she says, not what she means. You need to, you need to take care of her emotionally. And ladies, the Bible says that you're to be your husband's helper. You know, the Bible referred to Eve in the Genesis as his helper. And sometimes we think that's a derogatory term. Well, he, you know, this is my little helper. And so sometimes we look down as a, on a helper. But did you know that the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the helper? He's the one who comes alongside and strengthens, comes alongside and encourages. He's the one who comes alongside and, and supports. Aren't you thankful for the Holy Spirit? But wives, God just elevated you as an encourager. As someone who builds up your husband. So how can you do that? You cheer him on. You build him up. You give him respect. If you start doing those things, you'll start rising up to your praise. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, Paul said it this way. He said, these are the needs of a man and a woman in a marriage. Let each one of you men... In particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know what a woman needs is love. You know what a man needs is respect. And so a woman needs to love and a man needs respect. And so if you want a harmonious marriage, you need to function in the roles that God's given you. I'm gonna give you the last one. A husband is to be a protector, and he's also to be and the wife is to be a nurturer, he's to be a protector. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says that God put Adam in the garden to tend it and to keep it. Now, that word for keep in the Hebrew means to guard or protect. God designed men with this innate desire to protect. That's how He created us. Let me think about your home. I don't know how your home is, but who makes sure, sure that the doors are locked at night? Who makes sure that if somebody comes knocking on your door at an uh, uh, unknown or unusual time, who, who answers the door? In our deacon's devotion last month, Mike Hayes gave the devotion, and he said to those men, he said, if you don't put yourself between danger and your wife, we need to take your man card back. A man is to protect his wife. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says, husband's... Likewise, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Now, I know ladies don't like hearing that we're in a weaker vessel. I mean, that sounds like misogynistic or chauvinistic or some-istic that we create today. And so we think that that means that they're, you know, weaker. But, you know, weaker does not necessarily mean weak. It means delicate. And God created women to be delicate. It doesn't mean of lesser value. In fact, it may even really mean more value. How many of you have ever seen a cast iron pot? Some of the guys, sometimes you cook in a cast iron pot, and it's tough, and it's rugged, and it's made for heat, and you can abuse it and use it, and you don't think much about it, and it's not very expensive. But you know, think about a porcelain vase. I guess you would say vase. But you think about one of those porcelain vases. I read where one sold for 18 million dollars delicate. Sometimes we think delicate means of low low value, but in fact it means high value. And so when you have something that's more delicate, what do you do? You guard it. You protect it. I'll assure you, if I had an $18 million vase, I would protect it. And so a man is to protect his wife and a woman is to, to nurture. You know, it's amazing to watch women work God has created in you just a, div- a divine ability to nurture. Women always are looking for ways to minister to people, to meet their needs, to take care of them. And I just think about uh, the ladies over here on my right. I think about Diane and Jean and Connie and Cindy and all those ladies who have helped us through the years. God put it in their heart to be nurturers. And they don't just come sit with Kathy, they nurture Kathy. And then when I get home, she expects the same thing. <laughs> I watch a man, how he re- responds to a child when he gets hurt. He says, just get over it, shake it off. But a woman will say, let me kiss it and make it better. Different. And so we need to know that, how to function in our marriages. And so this morning is our invitation. I want to give you some options. Number one, you might be thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm single and I'm looking well, maybe this morning is our invitation. You need to come and just say, God, I want to make sure I find the right fit for me, and I want to please you in my marriage, even before I am married. Or maybe you're here single today and you know you're never going to be married. You think this, this sermon doesn't really apply. Well, yes, it does, because somebody might come to you for marriage counseling, and you need to give them wise counsel. And so, or maybe you are single and you know some people who are struggling in their marriages. Maybe this morning you can come and pray for them. Or maybe this morning, you know somebody who's struggling and you think, hey, I want to pray for for this, this family that I know is going through a hard time. Or maybe you're going through a hard time in your marriage. And maybe you just need to pray and say, God, I need you to help me be what you want me to be in this marriage. Or you might be a young person. And you think, you know, one day I'm going to be married. You might want to start praying right now. Or you might be a parent. You might want to come and pray for your child. For who they marry one day. Or maybe you're just here and none of this resonates. But the Holy Spirit's been working on your heart. And he wants you to come to Christ because you realize that I am not the bride. I'm outside. And maybe this morning you need to surrender. Would you do that? Let me invite you to pray with us this morning. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, I just want to thank you for your word, how clear it is how confrontational it is, even when we don't like it. But you certainly challenge us. We want to be surrendered to you and submitted to you in everything that you tell us to do. And sometimes your word is difficult. Sometimes your way is difficult, but we know it's the best way. And Lord, right now as we come to these moments, I just pray for families. I pray that you will protect us from our adversary who seeks to destroy marriage. Who, just, who seeks to destroy marriages and relationships. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would, be, you would reignite couples. You would reignite their commitment to one another. That they would be sold out to, to, to be in what you called them to be in their marriages. Lord, I pray for people today that aren't married but will be one day. I just pray you give them wisdom to know how to, to, to seek a mate for themselves. That they will find a, a mate that really applies your word to their lives i pray for those that are in trouble today that you would renew that commitment that surrender to be what you called them to be in marriage and so as we come to this time would help us to be responsive we ask it in jesus name amen would you stand as we sing together